So we find ourselves today on the third Sunday of the season of Lent. That's why the lectionary readings are somewhat gloomy, because we're in the season of Lent. And Lent is a Christian season of 40 days that begins on Ash Wednesday, which was March 2nd this year, and continues until the Saturday before Easter Sunday. Now, for those of you who are mathematicians, and I need you today, because we're going to do math today. So if you're good at math, thank you for being here. So maybe you'll be responsive. But if you are a mathematician or someone who cares for numbers, you might notice that it's strange to say that Lent is 40 days because it's in fact 46 days. Have you counted the days from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday? So why do we then say that Lent is a season of 40 days? Well, Lent is a season of mourning. It's a season of fasting. It's a season of repentance, which is why we put ashes on our forehead, some do, on Ash Wednesday. But the church has long taught that in the midst of that season, Sundays should be days of praise and celebration and remembrance of the hope that we have in Jesus in the midst of the darkest seasons of our lives. So we do not commemorate Lent on Sundays. The season is 40 days if you do not count the Sundays. So if you gave up something for Lent, people do this. I'm told they do this, they give up things for Lent, and you're still giving that thing up on Sunday, you're doing it wrong. So if you gave up chocolate for Lent, I hope you're eating chocolate on Sundays. That is the tradition. You never, never, never do the fast on Sunday. The question for us today is, why is Lent 40 days? And there are several symbolic reasons, but they're all tied to Jesus 40 days of fasting and being tested in the wilderness in the gospel accounts. So maybe the question is, why did Jesus spend 40 days in the wilderness to be tested? We might recall that in the days of Noah, when God decided to send a flood upon the whole earth because of the sins of humanity upon it, we might remember that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. God did that in response to humanity's wickedness upon the earth. Furthermore, we might remember that when God delivered the stipulations of the covenant of Sinai to Moses, Moses was up on Mount Sinai receiving the law for 40 days. We might also recall that when the Israelites refused to enter the promised land of Canaan because they were afraid that they were inadequate to the task, that the people of the land were too powerful for them, so they didn't trust that God would do it, and they looked at their own strength and knew they couldn't do it, so they refused to go in. Because of that, God condemned them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness was a bringing together of those events, a recapitulation, an identification with those events, all of which were seasons of repentance forced upon the people of the earth. The law, too, was a response to human sinfulness on the earth. The theme of Lent is repentance. That's the season that we're in leading up to Easter. We discussed two weeks ago what the term meant, and we revisited that in our children's time this morning. It means to turn around or to turn away and the call to repent, whoever brings it, is an indictment, not that we are foolish or rebellious necessarily, but that we are turned in the wrong direction. So our readings this morning were on the call to repentance, first by God through the prophet Isaiah, and then by Jesus himself, God in the flesh. Isaiah reminded us that our repentance comes as a response to the invitation of God. We are not in charge of when and whether we can repent. It doesn't lie with humans to make that decision. It's an invitation that God extends to humanity. 
We cannot simply repent at our, at our leisure. We must repent when God invites us to repent. And that's why our liturgist read these words from Isaiah's prophecy. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked abandon his way and the unrighteous person his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God made that same invitation anew to all nations on earth in Jesus. And the opportunity, what Paul called, the Apostle Paul calls the day of salvation, the opportunity to respond to God's call has been with us now for 1,989 years. If he died in 33 AD, which I think he did. Jesus too, in our second reading from Luke 13, verses 1 through 9, called his listeners to repent. It's an interesting passage. In that passage, Jesus recognized that some people only think of judgment locally, and individually. Such folks think that if bad things happen to one person or to one city, that that person or that city must be worse than other people and other cities. Consequently, if that individual is not suffering or their city is fine, then they figure they're good with God. Jesus corrected that thinking. Hear what Jesus said. This is the summary of it. If travesty is happening to anybody, if travesty is happening to anybody, then it's a sign that the whole community or the whole nation is in need of repentance. It's hard for us to imagine, but the scriptures actually say that a people wholly devoted to God will not suffer tragedy. That's what Jesus was correcting anyway. They thought these people who died when this tower fell in a building accident or the people who were persecuted by Pilate, they must have been bad people. And Jesus is saying, no, you're all in rebellion. The nation is in rebellion. That's why these things are happening. Repent. Turn around. You're headed in the wrong direction. And that too was the message of the prophet Amos where we are today. If you have Bibles, I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of Amos. Again, this is another aggressive passage from Amos, but bear in mind what we're looking for as we read it. We're asking the question, what does this prophecy teach us about God? What does this prophecy teach us about God? We're going to pick up today in Amos chapter 2, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. I did make slides today, but I hope you'll start bringing your Bibles. This is from the 2020 update of the New American Standard Bible. This is what the Lord says. For three offenses of Judah and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those which their fathers followed. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says. For three offenses of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. These who trample the head of the helpless to the dust of the earth also divert the way of the humble. And a man and his father resort to the same girl so as to profane my holy name. And on garments seized as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars. And he was as strong as the oaks. I also destroyed his fruit above and his roots below. 
And it was I who brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you in the wilderness for 40 years so that you might take possession of the land of the Amorite. Then I raised up some of your sons to be prophets and some of your young men to be Nazarites. Is this not so, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and you commanded the prophets saying, you shall not prophesy. Behold, I am making a rut in the ground beneath you just as a wagon makes a rut when filled with sheaves. Refuge will be lost from the swift, and the strong will not strengthen his power, nor the warrior save his life. The one who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape, nor will the one who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee on that day, declares the Lord. This is the word of God. Two weeks ago, we talked about God's condemnations of the nations surrounding Israel. And these condemnations were more general. And they were focused on behaviors that in God's estimation, all nations should know and understand to be evil. But now God has turned his attention to his own people. And the nature of God's concerns have changed. There are similarities, but there are differences. And we want to pay attention to the differences. The heart of God's correction of Israel can be found in verse 4. For three offenses of Judah, and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his statutes. Their lies also have led them astray, those which their fathers followed. The word for lies there in the Hebrew implies deceptive teachings. Unlike the other nations, Israel was not left to guess as to how God wanted them to live. All the other nations had to guess. If there were a God, what would he want? But not Israel. They didn't have to guess. They had been given a national set of laws, a national set of guidelines, and instructions by God through Moses. They were given what the Bible calls the Law of Moses, or the Covenant of Sinai. So presumably, they knew how God had asked them to live their lives, both personally and corporately. Each of God's accusations in the passage we just read highlighted specific violations of that covenant. You can find them all in the books of of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. According to God through Amos, Israel had been engaged in the slave trade. That's something he accused the other nations of too, if you remember. They had been exploiting the poor and the vulnerable. They had been acting sexually in ways prohibited by the covenant of Sinai. They were misusing items that had been set aside as pledges. They were drinking alcohol in the temple, which was prohibited by the law. They had made people drink alcohol who had taken vows of abstinence. Those were the Nazarites. I don't know how they got them to drink alcohol, but they made them even though they had promised not to. And they had prohibited God's prophets from speaking words they did not want to hear. God sent a prophet, they would listen, and they'd say, that's not what we want to hear. Could you give us some encouragement? We want to hear positive things. And they shut the prophets down. We see that throughout their history. In short, God's accusations against the people of Israel, who at this time were separated into two nations, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, God's accusations against them were that they had rebelled against him. The nations surrounding Israel were in trouble with God because they had violated their consciences and good sense. But he has a different problem with Israel. The people of Israel had rejected the clear instructions of God himself. And so God decreed, and listen to the judgments. They may seem aggressive to you, but they're, they're much more like consequences than they are like punishments. God decreed 
that the things they had done would be allowed to bear fruit. In other words, God's judgment was that he was no longer going to rescue them from the consequences of their choices. God was no longer going to be with them. That's really what his punishment was. Everything that happens to them is what happens to people when God is not with them. God reminded them that all of the victories, you saw it in the passage, all of the blessings they had experienced in the past were due to his being with them and for them. But now because they rejected him as Lord, they would have to live and fight on their own. The judgment of God on Israel, as prophesied by Amos, was that God was going to grant their prayers. They may have been prayers they didn't know they were praying. But they wanted to decide for themselves what was right and wrong. That's what they wanted. They wanted to be the captains of their own ships, the masters of their own destiny. They wanted to find their salvation in human wisdom and in human effort and in human strength. And God decided to allow them to have what they wanted. In the days to come, they'd be on their own. Now, I'm not saying they actually asked God this, because they may never have prayed that prayer with their mouths, but they had prayed it with their behavior for generations. So what do these revelations tell us about God? Well, the first thing it tells us is that God is exceedingly patient, and we need our mathematicians to have paid attention to the details of the text to get this straight. God is exceedingly patient. Amos was called, we read this two weeks ago, while King Jeroboam II was reigning over the northern Israelite kingdom of Israel, and while King Uzziah was reigning over the southern Israelite kingdom of Judah. Now, I know we read over that because we're like, yeah, whatever, you know. Uh, what, I, I had a teacher who said if you couldn't pronounce the name, just say Teapot. So this is like King Teapot was reigning over someplace in the pet. Great, wonderful. But that's important little detail because there, the reigns of these two kings overlapped from about 790 to 760 BC. That's the reign when they were both reigning. So that's where Amos lived. According to the Bible, the covenant of Sinai had been made in 1446 BC. Now, scholars today have decided it was 1290 BC because of some different historical data, but the Bible says 1446. So Amos was called to bring this message. Can we do the math? What's 1446 minus 790 or 760? I, I'm not expecting you to do that math in your head, though. Some of you have calculators. You could do it. He was called to bring this message over 650 years after the covenant had been made. And you might say, well, maybe they obeyed it for a while. <laughs> the Bible tells us that within 40 days of making that covenant, they had already broken it. Within 40 days. They broke it while Moses was still on the mountain receiving the rest of the law. God gave them 10 commandments, and then Moses went up to get the rest. And they broke one of the 10 commandments. Within the 40 days, he was up there getting the rest. So it's not as though God brought this devastating judgment on Israel right away. It's not as though God is short-tempered, that he saw somebody doing something he didn't like, and so he just destroyed them. Sorry, my ear thing is doing its thing. But it's not as though he did that right away. For nearly 700 years, can you calculate the time? How long has America been around? 
246 years. For nearly 700 years, God had sent warning after warning, prophet after prophet, judgment after judgment, before he finally determined to answer Israel's prayer and leave them to their own devices and their own wisdom. God is exceedingly patient and merciful. He's not quick-tempered. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and steadfast loyalty, both to his word and to his promises. He relents to send destruction. God's judgment, when it comes, is preceded by exceedingly long periods of forbearance. Amos's warning to Israel was that the time of God's mercy was nearing its end. In fact, for those who are interested in history, within 40 years of Amos preaching these messages to the northern kingdom of Israel, within 40 years, the kingdom of Assyria would come out and destroy northern Israel permanently. They've never been found. To this day, these tribes are called the lost tribes of Israel. Within 40 years of Amos giving them these warnings. So the first thing we learn is that God is exceedingly patient. He is not quick-tempered. Secondly, we learn that God expects more from those who know him than he does from those who don't. God's standards for the nation surrounding Israel and for Israel itself were not precisely the same. God expected more from Israel precisely because he had revealed more to them. Jesus said as much to his disciples in Luke chapter 12. This is verses 35 through 48. This is the teaching of Jesus. He says to his disciples, Be prepared and keep your lamps lit. You are also to be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door for him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will prepare himself to serve and have them recline at the table and he will come up and serve them. It's a Passover metaphor, right? Reclining at the table. We learned that last week. Whether he comes in the second watch or even in the third and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. You too be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not think he will. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone else as well? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward, whom his master will put in charge of his servants, to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will take a long time to come, and he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of that slave will come on a day that he does not expect, and at an hour that he does not know, and will cut him in two and assign him a place with the unbelievers. And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will will receive many blows. But the one who did not know it and committed acts deserving of a beating will receive only a few blows. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. Those are the teachings of Jesus. Now you and I do not know how Jesus will judge those people who have never been exposed to the Bible. 
who've never heard of Jesus, who have never had his gospel explained to them. We don't know how Jesus will judge them, but we can imagine that such a judgment would be similar to what we saw two weeks ago in God's judgment of the nations surrounding Israel. But for those of us who have access to Bibles, who've heard of Jesus, who've had his, his gospel explained to us, much more will be required of us. We're saved not by works, but by the grace of God. The Israelites were not slaved, saved from slavery in Egypt by works. Were they? Did they get themselves out of there? No, and they, there's nothing in the text to say they were particularly good people. God had made a promise to Abraham, and he fulfilled it by delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And he did it by grace, by his own work, he delivered them. So Jesus has saved us from our slavery to sin and death, not because we were righteous or because we were good people, but because he had promised to do so. And we receive this work of God as Israel received the covenant of Sinai, through faith, by trusting him. That's what faith means, it's trust. Israel evidenced their trust in God as they followed him through the parted waters of the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds. We evidence our trust in him by following Jesus, by walking as he walked and submitting to what God has said. So God is exceedingly patient and God expects more from those who know him than he does from those who do not. Finally, God often tolerates behaviors for centuries with which he profoundly disagrees. We must never confuse God's mercy and God's patience with God's acceptance. For nearly 700 years, God had allowed Israel to exist as a nation in spite of the people's generational refusal to follow his guidance and teachings. And many who lived during those centuries of God's grace where he was not punishing what they were doing, they assumed that because God was not destroying the nation, that God was fine with what they were doing. They mistook God's mercy for approval. In fact, some of the most financially prosperous periods of Israel's history were enjoyed during the reigns of the worst of his kings. And this might be my favorite uh, aha moment for me in studying the book of Amos. Amos lived and prophesied during the reign of King Jeroboam II, one of the most prosperous reigns in the history of Israel and the wickedest at the same time. Interesting, right? And you might ask yourself, why would God do that? Why would he bless a nation at a time that they were living in rebellion? Well, this is the most interesting thing. Second King tells us, Second Kings tells us exactly why he did it. This is Second Kings chapter 14, beginning in verse 23. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, this is the Jeroboam we've been talking about, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned for 41 years. If you know anything about the reigns of kings, that is a long time. Most of them don't reign that long. So he is a very long reign, 41 years. Could you imagine any American president ruling for 41 years? Wouldn't that be something? He did evil in the sight of the Lord. 
He did not abandon all the sins of the first Jeroboam, Jeroboam the son of Nebat, into which he misled Israel. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamat as far as the Sea of Arabah, in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gat Hefer. You know, Jonah and Amos were contemporaries. For the Lord saw the misery of Israel, which was very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free spared, nor was there any helper for Israel. Yet the Lord did not say that he would wipe out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So this was the king to whom Amos had been sent. So this judgment we've been reading about was a response to the reign of this very king. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And yet, we're told that God gave him a huge victory. If you got out a map and you looked at how much he expanded the territory of northern Israel, he expanded it an enormous amount. He was hugely successful. Why did God bless him? Well, he only incidentally was blessed. God did not bless him. God used him to bring this great deliverance. Because, as the text says, God saw how much his people were suffering. And God decided to have mercy on them. And in order to have mercy on these suffering people, he had to bless a wicked king, and he did it. When Moses asked God to see his glory, God said the following to Moses. This is how the story went. This is in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, beginning in verse 6. Then the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth, who keeps faithfulness for thousands, who forgives wrongdoing, violation of his law and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, inflicting the punishment of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Two things are revealed there that are also being revealed to us through Amos. God has declared that God demonstrates his compassion, mercy, and patience for far longer periods than he does his wrath and judgment. Praise be to God, to the thousandth generation of those who love him. But this does not mean that judgment never comes. Nor does it mean that God has approved of what has been done during the years and seasons of his compassion and mercy. As we've observed already, the heart of Amos' message to Israel was this. Repent. For the season of God's mercy in which you've got away with everything is nearing its end. What have we learned about God? from Amos' prophecies against Judah and against Israel. God is exceedingly patient, sending his people warning after warning, oftentimes for centuries before handing us over to the consequences of our choices. When God finally does determine to judge nations and people, he expects more from those who know him than from those who do not, which is why Peter later will say, judgment begins with the household of God. You've heard that. And what God has tolerated during his seasons of mercy is no indication as to what God finds acceptable. To discover what God finds acceptable, we must look to the words he's spoken, not to the behaviors that he has tolerated. How might we respond to these revelations? I don't know. 
It's the word of God. So I think all I can do is give you an encouragement. Unless you're someone motivated by challenges, and I'll call it a challenge for you. I encourage you to commit to reading through the entire Bible in the next 12 months. And if you think, well, I've done that before, do it again. That's my challenge to you, my encouragement to you. I have several reading plans that you can choose from if you don't know where to start. I'll put some links on our Facebook page and I'll make sure they're available to those who contact the office if you just don't know where you might start. Because reading the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, usually not the best way to do it. Because by the time you hit Leviticus, you're going to quit. Right? Everybody's read Genesis and Exodus 5,000 times. But once you hit Leviticus, you're like, oh, what have I gotten into? And it just peters out, you know? And while you read... I encourage you to begin each reading with prayer. Ask God, who's not an idea or someone from the past or some concept we're trying to utilize, but a real and living person. Ask God to reveal to you the things in your life of which he disapproves. Nobody can have that conversation. Well, other people will try to have that conversation with you, but that's not going to work. That's a conversation between you and God. He knows what he approves of and what he doesn't. And if we read asking him, I believe he will answer. And if you truly have faith in Jesus, if you truly trust him, then once the Lord allows you to see, your faith will be demonstrated by how you respond. That's my challenge to you today.